God, again, we come before you and remember that you have promised to work grace and strength and faith in our hearts and our minds, and you've promised to do that in particular ways. And the main way is through your word as it's preached and as it's heard and as it's read. And so we pray now that your spirit would come and work together with your word as you have promised to do and stir us up in obedience that is spurred by faith and Remind us of the great grace of the gospel found in Jesus Christ alone. We ask that you would do this now in our midst. And we pray that you would bless this preacher and this congregation under the authority of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Here then, brothers and sisters, this morning from God's word, it's found printed in your bulletin. Our text comes from the 32nd chapter of Genesis, verses 22 through 32. This is the word of the Lord, so give it your attention. The same night he, that's Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Jacob took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's good to be back with you again today. I'm Marianne and I. I pray for you guys often, as does your sister church over on the east side, Rincon Mountain. And I'll bring you greetings from Rincon. Uh, we're thinking of you and praying for you. And it's great to be with you this morning. We do have a new addition to our house uh, that wasn't here last time. Little Nathaniel's our five-month-old baby. So if he starts crying, I'll keep going and you keep going. <laughs> He's really a good baby. So, uh, Anyway, it's good to be with you today. I grew up in a family of three boys. And one thing that we love to do a lot with my dad, as some of you families that have boys probably do as well, is wrestle. And a lot of the time... We would spend evenings together on our living room floor wrestling, and my dad would obviously not harm us or hurt us in the wrestling matches. He allowed it to be a really good time, and I never thought about it, and you probably never think about it either. How could a 200-pound man wrestle with, with little toddlers without destroying them, without just stomping them into the ground? Well, really, it's rather easy. He can do it because he didn't obviously put, put his full weight on us or, or put his full force behind his, his blows. He was, in a sense, just toying with us. He was wrestling with his three boys in love. Men are very strange. They express love in that way. He was wrestling with his 
three boys in love, as a father can do with his kids. And our friend and our forefather, Jacob, who we read about in this text, was always wrestling. He was always wrestling with someone. Early in his life, he wrestled with his brother Esau. Later in his life, he wrestled with his father-in-law and his uncle Laban. And here today, we see him wrestling with God in human form. A very strange, a very mysterious text. Let me set a little bit of the background and the context for this passage, which is somewhat of a familiar one if you're familiar with your Bibles and with your Old Testaments at all. Jacob has just escaped from 20 or so years of service to his uncle and father-in-law, Laban. And God has called him back to his homeland in Canaan to go back there and reclaim the land that is his by divine right. Only now Jacob is going back with a full family. We read that he has 11 children, two wives, two female servants, and a huge amount of wealth in the form of livestock. And so Jacob is slowly making his way back across the Jabbok River into the land of Canaan where he's from. But there is one major problem that is sort of like always in the forefront of Jacob's mind, and that is his older brother, just by a few seconds, his twin Esau. You see, Jacob, before he had left to go live in Laban's land, had stolen his Esau's blessing and Esau's birthright, even though he was the younger of the two boys. And Esau had vowed to kill Jacob the next time he saw him. And so Jacob, with his mother Rebekah's help, fled the land. And now for the first time he is returning, and he knows that his brother Esau is now a powerful and a wealthy and hopefully not a vengeful man. Esau is coming to meet Jacob, and he has 400 armed men on horses with him. That is what's going on here. Jacob is scared to death. And yet, we see in the first part of chapter 20, or excuse me, chapter 32, that even though he's approaching Esau's territory, which he must go through on the way back to, to his own land, he is now repentant and sorrowful for the things that he had done so many years ago to his brother Esau. And he has sent Esau in the verses just before what we read this morning, a bunch of gifts in the form of livestock in order to appease Esau's wrath, in order to, to mollify Esau's hatred for him to some extent. And of these livestock, you see in verses 17 through 21 of chapter 32 that uh, Jacob took special care to see that these gifts would have sort of a maximal impact. He separated them. So three or four uh, prized possessions would come down the road towards Esau. And then a little while later, a little bit more of the flock and herd would come. And then a little bit more later on, so that Esau would, as it were, be hit again and again with Jacob's pleas for forgiveness in the form of these gifts. Jacob also, in the early part of chapter 32, prayed an amazing prayer to God of repentance. It's a big change in Jacob's life. He has been a self-sufficient man his whole life, but now he's finally, we see, beginning to turn, to turn to God in faith and in repentance. But Jacob still has some problems. He still has some issues. And the main issue that he has at this point in his life, friends, is this one. His problem is that, is that he believes that the climax of his life's struggle is coming up tomorrow and that it's coming up against Esau. And he is dead wrong about that. 
God has another plan. You see, Jacob has shown a willingness to part with his possessions, and here in the beginning of our text, to to part even with his family, but he has not yet parted with himself. He still hasn't given himself to God. If you read his story, beginning in chapter 25 of Genesis, I'd encourage you to do that, particularly if you're not really familiar with the Old Testament. It's a wonderful story. You'll see that Jacob has always been self-sufficient. And so God this morning is going to show Jacob that the pinnacle struggle, the apex of wrestling matches in his life is not going to take place in the morning against Esau, but it's going to take place in the middle of the night. And it's going to be against God himself. God is, he's going to wrestle Jacob into submission. He's going to pin him and bring him finally to the end of himself. And so I want you to see, with that background in mind, this main point today from Genesis 32. Jacob is strong in his weakness because God was weak despite his strength. Jacob is strong in his weakness because God was weak despite his strength. I want to explore that with you as we examine this text a little bit this morning, and we'll look at it in three different Parts, three different parts. First, we need to see and grasp the situation. What is the situation? We find it in verses 22 through 24a. As we've already said, uh, Jacob is returning to meet his, his great nemesis, his twin brother Esau. And so we read in verse 22 and in verse 23 that he takes his family and he sends them across the river Jabbok. Everything that Jacob has is gone now. You can imagine, Jacob sort of does this to psychologically pump himself up. Esau's going to be here tomorrow. He's coming with his 400 men. What's going to happen? He must have been asking. How's it going to turn out? Will God be faithful to his promise to me? These are the questions that he was wrestling with through the early parts of the night as he couldn't sleep. And then we read in verse 24a, Jacob was left alone. The author of Genesis, Moses, he he goes out of his way here to bring that point into the foreground. Jacob is by himself. Now, if you're reading this just as a a novel, as a piece of literature, and it's an amazing piece of literature, the the sequential detail of the story, the fact that Jacob is now by himself, it, it serves to sort of build suspense in the story. But the Bible is not just a wonderful piece of literature, it's it's theologically and historically true. And in theological retrospect, Jacob's solitude, it serves an important spiritual purpose. It gives us this picture. It helps us to see this point, that Jacob must encounter his adversary alone, by himself, without possessions, without protection. Now, the great irony of the text is that he thinks his adversary is going to be Esau. But it's another man who meets him, the Lord himself, in human form. So that's Jacob's situation. He's by himself. Ignore this fly up here. I'm going to try and kill it at some point in the sermon. (laughs) Jacob's by himself. I'd like to think about this with you just for a little bit more by way of application. I think it's, it's crucial for us to see here that if we, 
If you are going to encounter the true and living God, then you must do so alone. If you want to know God personally, if you want a real relationship with Him, then you must encounter Him by yourself. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God isn't really present with us right now in corporate worship. He certainly is. I'm not saying that what we do here is not important or that community isn't important. It certainly is vital to our Christian lives. But for you and for me to relate to God in a real and in a personal way, we must meet Him by ourselves. That's what Jacob had to realize. And that's what we have to realize. Think about it with me. Is it not very possible for people like you and me to be radically affected emotionally and to be impacted mentally by other people's experiences of God? It certainly is possible. It reminds me of my sister-in-law, Meredith, who's a dear gal. She went to, uh, I'm from Texas, and we love football in Texas. Meredith went to Texas Tech University and went to a lot of football games with her boyfriend, who was now her husband. And they would sit in the student section. And Meredith really, she didn't grow up watching football. She grew up with a bunch of sisters. She has no clue how to follow the game as it's taking place on the field. And so when Tech would do something good and everybody would stand up and start cheering, Meredith would just look around and stand up and start cheering. Oh, it must be time to cheer. Or when the quarterback for Tech threw an interception and everybody went, oh, no, and started booing, Meredith, who had no idea what had just happened, would look around and start booing. She didn't understand why she was booing or why she was cheering. She was just affected by the encounter that other people were having with the football game. That happens a lot of the time in the Christian life as well. We, we can be a part of the institution or a part of the movement, but never really meet God by ourselves. Tim Keller says this, A lot of people are overshadowed by God's presence, but never penetrated by it. Hebrews chapter 6 talks about this in very sobering terms when it describes those people who fall away from the faith, who leave the church as people who have tasted the heavenly gifts and shared in the Holy Spirit. Do you see the point? The point is that people can get close enough, as it were, to touch God and never really know Him personally. good example of this is going to college. Some of you might have had this experience. Say you were involved in a really good, active high school youth group, or you went to Young Life, or you, you were just a part of sort of the Christian culture in your high school, and you thought that your faith was strong and vibrant, and God seemed real to you in many ways, and you had a lot of good relationships, and then you go off to college, and your environment is radically changed. And because of that, you stop going to church. You stop reading your Bible and praying. It just doesn't seem real to you anymore. Why? Well, the reason is because your relationship with God was never personal. It was never just between you and Him. Rather, you were, you were a part of the institutional tide, so to speak. Now, we all know examples of this, and it might even be true in our own lives. You see, ultimately, you have to deal with God personally. And if you are here this morning and you haven't done that, then I want to encourage you to do it today. There's no time to lose. 
Come and meet with the Lord Jesus. If you want to know more about what that looks like, I'm happy to talk to you after the sermon. I know Dick and some others would be happy to talk to you as well. So that's the situation. Jacob is meeting with his God, and he's finally meeting with him alone. Secondly, we see in verses 24b, the second part of verse 24 through 26, the wrestling match. The wrestling match. Jacob is about to encounter. He's about to deal with God personally. And so we read in the second part of verse 24, A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now imagine how this must have been for Jacob, if you can. He's walking back from the riverside after leaving his family. It's pitch black outside. You know, he's in the middle of the Middle East. There were no street lights. It's as dark as he couldn't see the hand in front of his face, probably. And his mind is is undoubtedly preoccupied with concerns about what's going to happen with his brother when he sees him tomorrow. And then suddenly, he feels someone grab on his shoulder from behind him, fling him to the ground. Maybe he was thinking, oh, a bandit is out to get me. He's going to rob me. Maybe he's thinking that Esau had sent an assassin ahead of him to to kill him and to wreak vengeance in Esau's behalf. No matter what Jacob initially thought, we read that, that he engages with this mystery man in mortal combat. Now we know from chapter 29 when Jacob moved the top of a well off all by himself that he's an extremely strong man physically. And he wrestles with this man. He, he takes him on, we read in verse 24, all night until the breaking of the day. Now, I did a little bit of wrestling in my middle school and high school career. I wasn't very good. I'm too skinny. Um, basketball was more my sport. But we would wrestle uh, three rounds of two minutes each. And it was the most physically exhausting thing I've ever participated in athletically. Some of you might be familiar with it. Six minutes of wrestling almost killed me. Jacob wrestles all night with this man, whom he later finds out is God himself. Now, of course, the key question, the key question that you might be thinking is, why does God meet Jacob like this? Think about it. We saw in the first part of the chapter, we didn't read it today, but if you did, you would see this, that that Jacob had been acting with more faith than he ever had before in his life. He has left Laban and obeyed God's command to return home. He has recently given this remarkable and faithful prayer to God, as I told you in verses 9 through 12 of this chapter. And he's displayed evidence of repentance for his behavior towards Esau in in sending him all these gifts. And so what does God do in response to Jacob's faith and repentance? He attacks him. He blindsides him. He hits him in the dark and cripples him for life. What is going on? What is the meaning of this? Does God not love His chosen servant, our forefather, the patriarch Jacob? Well, one thing we can learn here about God is that He's a lot like C.S. Lewis says of Aslan the lion. He is no tame lion. This is the God of the Bible not the God of modern liberal religion. He's not the God who simply uh, is sort of a senile old man in the sky that loves everyone and wants everyone to just get along. God is like an uncaged lion. 
fiery, mighty, frightening. But the question remains, why does God approach the patriarch, our forefather, Jacob, like this? And here's the answer. God wants Jacob to quit depending on himself. God is out to finally teach Jacob the lesson of divine dependence. You see, Jacob must learn submission of his whole self to the Lord. One theologian and preacher wrote this, God's way to your heart is by the divine dislocation of something that makes you strong. That's exactly what's happening to Jacob here, isn't it? You see, we're the same way as Jacob. A lot of the times, we will give God everything except for ourselves. Everything but our hearts. We'll give Him time, which is valuable in this culture. We'll give Him money. We'll give Him talent. But we don't give Him our souls. You see, we treat God a lot of the time like a bad husband treats his wife. You know, he'll do something foolish or wrong and he'll try to to win back his wife's favor by buying her a car or by buying her jewelry or by buying her clothes when all the wife wants is his love. All she wants is his heart. You see, God wants your heart. He wants all of us. He wants every inch of our souls. And to show us that, he has to wrestle us into submission because we like to keep our hearts for ourselves. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, if you've believed in the Lord Jesus, there's some application that's, that's pretty tough to hear from this text, and that's this. You and I, we should not expect, we should not expect our relationship with God to always be like we're out in the garden having a tea party. We should expect to wrestle. You see, Christian, God is going to take you. God is going to change you. And because we're so resistant, He is going to do this forcefully. He even causes pain and suffering to us in order to bring us to depend on Him and not ourselves. He will take us through trials and cause us to give Him what is most valuable to us, and that's our own lives. There's a great hymn that was written by John Newton that RUF sings a lot. You might have sung it here before. Uh, It's called, I Asked the Lord. And I want to read you some of the lyrics because it makes this point I'm trying to get across. And I think the text is trying to get across so beautifully. Listen to this. Here's what Newton wrote. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. That sounds good, right? We all want to do that. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Okay, there's the request. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed. Cast out my feelings. Laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? And listen. 
Tis in this way, the Lord replied, that I answer prayers for grace and faith. How is he answering your prayer for grace and for faith? It's by combating you. Your cancer, it stinks. It's no fun. But its ultimate purpose is bringing you to the end of yourself. Your crumbling marriage is God bringing you to the end of yourself. Your parenting struggles is God bringing you to the end of yourself. Your loneliness and questioning why you can't get married is God bringing you to the end of yourself. God, Christian, He is wrestling you. He is taking you to the mat. He is pile-driving your self-sufficiency to do away with it. Damaging your pride so that you will cling only to Him and not to anything else in your life. That's what we can see from this part of Jacob's life. There's also application here for non-Christians. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you're not sure if you're a Christian or not, if you're exploring Christianity, we're glad you're here. Welcome. Uh, But this text has some application for you as well that you need to hear. Maybe you're wrestling with God but really in a very different way than a Christian would. Maybe, maybe you're exploring Christianity or, or trying to learn about its teachings and, and its ethics and, and beginning to read the Bible and hang out with believers. Now, it doesn't take much exploration before, before questions start coming for the intelligent and thoughtful non-Christian. Let me give you a few examples. Why would a good God send eternal people Excuse me. Why would a good God send people to eternal conscious torment in hell? Or hasn't science disproved the Bible? Or why have so many terrible things been done in the name of Christianity? This is, uh, in a sense, it's the beginning of the skeptic's own wrestling match with God. And that can be good. But I want to warn you, if you're here, that's the situation you're in. Part of your wrestling with God is indeed asking honest questions and seeking honest answers. And I want to encourage you to ask these questions in the appropriate context. But let me put it to you this way. God is not your punching bag. In other words, uh, if you're seeking a relationship with God that's real, then you must also allow Him to ask you some questions. You don't permanently get the floor. Let me just ask you to consider listening to God's word as well as questioning him with your words. Do you want to approach him genuinely? Do you want to have a real relationship with him if he exists? Well, this is the way to start. You need to consider the fact that the real God might be very different. He might just not fit the categories that you want to impose on him. Indeed, it's, it's very possible that he's different than you in your mind think he should be. So, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you think you're genuinely searching for him, that's good. But you must let God wrestle with you. He gets to ask some questions of your presuppositions while you question his presuppositions as well. And that's the only way to truly wrestle. It's the only way to truly relate. Jacob is in the midst of a grueling all-night fight with Almighty God. 
And then in verses 27 through 31, we see thirdly, and the winner is. And the winner is. I want you to to look at the end of the text and ask that pressing question, which is a strange one. It's sort of ambiguous, isn't it? Who wins this match? Who comes out on top? That's one of the most mysterious things about the passage, and, and I think it's the culmination of the passage too. It seems that Jacob wins on the one hand, but he leaves the match crippled for the rest of his life. And when you think about it, the obvious question is, how, how could God himself lose a fight with a mere mortal? The text, it's, it's driving you to ask these questions. So I want to pose for you the solution that both win and both lose. Both win and both lose. And in fact, both win by losing. Let's think about that together just for a minute. Let's look at God's role in the match first. On the one hand, God wins the match and Jacob loses. God wins by, by getting Jacob to finally submit and rely on him. Where do we see that? We see that in the passage because at, at some point during the night, during this fight, Jacob he begins to wrestle not to get away from God, but to hold on to God. That's why God tells him, let me go. But Jacob says, no, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. So what marked that change in his mind and in his behavior during this wrestling match? Well, what marks it is that somehow, in some way, he realizes that if he does not have hold of God, he has nothing If he doesn't possess Christ by faith, then he doesn't possess anything. And God wins because Jacob now knows that God will not be an additive. God will not be the seasoning. God is the main course. And the main course only. God wins here because because Jacob realizes that God alone is enough in life. Jacob comes to the point of faithful reliance on him. He comes out of his own self-sufficiency. God shows Jacob that he cannot live happily in his own strength. And his whole life prior is a testimony to that. He cripples him for life just with a mere touch. And the word there is touch. It's like just ding, crippled for life. So that Jacob would have a constant daily reminder of reliance. So Jacob acknowledges that God is superior. We see that in the passage. It's not just implicit. Jacob asked this man for a blessing. He might as well say, I submit, you're superior, please bless me. And then in verse 27, when God asks him his name, he says, my name is Jacob. But that's not Jacob just giving information. It's a confession of sin. And we know that when we remember what Jacob means. Jacob means cheater. It means conniver. It means deceiver. And his whole life to this point has been characterized by his name. But here, what happens? God changes his name. And the significant thing is that God is changing his heart. No longer is he Jacob. He's now wrestler, Israel. You see the point? In Jacob losing, God 
wins. In Jacob finally resting in his weakness, he sees God's strength. In Jacob submitting to a more powerful one in faith, God finally shows his servant what he wants him to see, that he, he is sufficient. He finally has Jacob saying, you are enough for me, God. You are more precious than gold. All my heart desires is you. And it's the same for all of us as Christians. You see, in our spiritual limping, we see that God is strong. In our dependence, God gets victorious glory for Himself. God will wrestle us to submission in the Christian life. And in that, He shows, friends, He shows that He is enough for us. He wants us singing with Charles Wesley. Other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave me, leave me not alone. Still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All my help to thee I bring. That is the anthem of a dependent Christian. It's Jacob's anthem. It's our anthem. So God wins by getting Jacob to lose. But on the other hand, and finally, Jacob wins. And God loses. Why does God call Jacob the winner? Look at the passage, verse 28. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel... Why? For you have striven with God and men, and what? You have prevailed. You win. What? Jacob's crippled. How could Jacob beat God? Jacob even is amazed in verse 30 that his life was spared. For I have seen God face to face, and what? Yet my life has been delivered. Well, the answer is that Jacob wins because God lost. What do I mean? We see a hint of this, when God injures Jacob's hip. A better translation for that word, some of you might have it in your own Bibles, is thigh. And if you were to go home this afternoon and pull out an Old Testament concordance or look it up on the internet and you did a search for the word thigh and cross-referenced it with every other use in the Old Testament, you would have a very interesting afternoon because the word thigh in the Old Testament, generally is a euphemism for the male sexual organ, just to be blunt. So what's going on here? Here's what's happening. God is declaring Jacob the winner in the fight because Jacob's descendant, literally the one who will come from his thigh, loses. The seed of Jacob here is touched, here is injured, here is damaged, here loses, so that Jacob can win. You see, God can give Jacob a blessing when Jacob says to him, I will not let you go unless you bless me, because Jesus, on the cross, in his own wrestling match with God, said, I will not let you go, God, until you bless them. 
You see, God is able to wrestle in love with Jacob, teaching him dependence like a loving father. But he can do this only because he wrestled in wrath with Jesus, with the seed from Jacob's own loins. God, as it were, he, he withholds his full weight when wrestling with Jacob like my dad used to do with me when I was a little baby, when I was a little toddler. But he can only do this with the sinner. He can only do this with cheater, with deceiver, with conniver Jacob. And he can only do this with you and with me because he poured out his full force of anger against human rebellion into his match with Jesus on the cross. So now he comes to Jacob and allows himself to lose to this man with a new name, Israel. You see, God, God crushes Jacob's seed so that Jacob and his other descendants, like you and like me, would not be crushed. He humbly allows himself to lose on the cross so that sinners like Jacob and you and me can win. So Jacob here points us, like every other passage in the Old Testament, to the true Israel, to the final Israel, to the man who ultimately and fully wrestled and strove with God, not for himself, but for you and for me. You see, he's the one who prevailed in the agony of his death to bring us to God that we might see his face and live. Friends, that's what Jacob's story is all about. And that's what the Lord and the power of his spirit leaves us with this morning. You see, the terrors of wrestling with God's wrath with you and with me can have nothing to do because God, because our Savior's obedience and because of our Savior's blood, have all of our transgressions removed. That is good news. Let's pray. Father, we um, come before you acknowledging that we so often in our lives are like this man Jacob, our spiritual heir and forefather. And in a sense, we're encouraged to read that he really was no hero he was a man who, like us, needed to submit and rely. And so we pray that you would help us to do that. And we thank you that in your wrestling matches with us in life, where you bring us pain and difficulty and trial, you do that for our good because you already wrestled with Jesus and all evil and all wrath and all of your hell, hellish rage against our sin has been taken away. Thank you for, in creative ways in your Bible, through stories, teaching us the gospel truth again and again. And we pray as we leave here and as we come to the table that you would use your word visibly to change us from the inside out so that this week our life will be characterized by limping, by limping in faith and by looking to Jesus and not to ourselves. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.